The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors, emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy and Transition Podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. I am joined as usual with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. We are coming to you live from the Upright Digital Studios in Houston, Texas. Hello, Mr. Pickering. Hey, how, how are you? Are you? I, I wasn't sure you'd recognize me with a tie on. You look sharp. And so yeah, I, I thought I'd I'd change it up. Did you give a speech today, or did you? Were you on CNBC? No, 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 no. Just had a had a company meeting where I wanted to be presentable. So well, you look very presentable. I like yeah. the Texas socks. Yeah, thank you. You know, I was wondering what we should talk about, and I know we don't like to timestamp these things a little bit, but let's be honest. We the Texan season just ended. Um, they had a great year, and I wanted to tell you congratulations. Thank you. Are you. A, you are a big Texans fan. Thank you. Yes, it was so exciting. I went to the game against – Oh, the playoff game. Went to the playoff game where they played as good as I've ever seen them play, <laughs> and so I literally stayed till the very last second um, to soak it all in, knowing that that was probably going to be the last one of the season. Yeah. And, and – uh, you know they did they did great couldn't beat baltimore but it was what was so the atmosphere much better in the stadium was it great Everybody it was, was in a good awesome mood. people were so excited and yelling i had a lot of um, browns fans around and uh they were not nearly as happy but um two pick sixes i mean That's come right, on yeah. it, get, it couldn't get any better but well i just wanted to publicly because i i do enjoy some of your question and and our guests will find out here in a second what specifically we're talking about but it was really, I, I actually thought about you the entire time. So nah, there, there you go. go. Yeah. I, I love it when men are thinking about me during football games. <laughs> That's right. What scares what, me a little what, what bit. Dan Picker he's yeah, doing right I'll, now. I'll, I'll take it. There you go. Um, well, good to see you, sir. Yes. Likewise with you as well. And we're, we're joined today by Will Foyles. Will, welcome. Glad to have you here. Will's the co-founder of Project Canary, which is a really cool name. And we always like to get the website out there quickly so we can, so folks who are listening in can look on the website while they're hearing the podcast. And so that's www.projectcanary.com. That's right. So um, for those of you that want to check out the website while we're doing the podcast, please do. And Will, we should, I think we should start where we always start with our guests, which is tell us a little bit about you and where you grew up and how you wound up in this seat. Yeah, thanks for having me, first of all. Sure. You guys have an amazing podcast, spans a wide number of topics. Uh, I originally was born in South Carolina, Hilton at Island, South Carolina. Grew up there my whole life. Uh, <clears throat> Dad was brought to help develop the island. He's a real estate attorney. So I was really kind of always involved in real estate most of my life. And then uh, I've lived in Georgia, Philadelphia, New York City, California, and now I live in Denver, Colorado. So okay. just been around quite a bit. Um, and Denver's so far so good. It's an How long you been in place. Denver? Uh, four and a half, coming up on five years. Okay. Yeah. So it's a good time. I moved there to start Project Canary uh, with Chris. So coming out of uh, grad school. Okay. So that was the main purpose. Okay. Yeah. And and so tell us about Project Canary. What what is it? How? Where did this idea come from? What's the company do? Yeah, the, the overall idea is we're a emissions uh, measurement company. By and large, we started in the point sensor space. We'll get into that in a moment. <clears throat> but I got into it because, well, prior to going out to the West Coast to grad school, I was in New York City and I was doing research. And one of the things I was working on 
was around activity rates in the upstream space. And I started acquiring data on my own or coming up with new metrics to measure things. And really quickly, I started to find out that what was being reported oftentimes by countries, government agencies, companies, was not really lining up with what I was seeing in the data. So I go out to grad school out on the West Coast and I see all these, you know, net zero pledges, a whole bunch of people, you know, leaning into, mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, I mean, net zero 2050, sustainability, all, uh -huh. all good stuff on the surface. But I read over some of these earnings call transcripts and I don't really hear anyone talking about pivoting their capital allocation strategy or taking a haircut to EPS in the near term while they invest in the future. And I start <coughs> scratching my head a little bit. No place that I see this playing out more than in the methane space, where I saw a very large gap between bottom-up and top-down measurements. So if you were to add up all the methane measure, all the methane emissions from different sectors, and then you look top-down what's happening in a certain area, just let's say from a satellite, the two numbers aren't even remotely close. As you guys know, methane does not live in the atmosphere for very long, 11 to 12 years. So if you reduce methane emissions, you can actually reduce the radiative forcing all else equal because it goes away pretty quickly, unlike CO2, which lives in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. I got linked up with Chris, my co-founder. He is a politician really at heart, totally different than me. Oh. Uh, wonderful guy, but he was really uh, taking the knack from a public policy standpoint. And Colorado, at least in the DJ Basin, there's close proximity of homes to well sites. And so there was a lot of communities that were concerned about mm -hmm. BTEX, benzene, tulane, ethobenzene, xylene emissions near their home. A lot of that, you know, was not necessarily substantiated, but nevertheless, um, the, the regulatory agencies started mandating some sort of monitoring. And so Chris saw this and he was like, hey, people are, are going to have to measure something. And so we kind of approached it from two different perspectives. And that was that. Where did you meet Chris? I met Chris through a classmate of mine at Stanford. Okay. Yeah. And you say he's a politician. Is he, you guys are the same age? He's older? No, no, no. Chris is quite a bit older. Okay. Yeah, he's like 30 years old than I am. Yeah. Okay. So he, um, it's a good experience, I would think, just with some fresh. Because what, what you're describing, looking at these transcripts, et cetera, this is in your late twenties. Yeah. Okay. And which is great. There's a lot of theory and excitement there, but then to find somebody that has, hey, I've seen this over <coughs> a, a career lifetime of thirty plus years ahead of you to kind of merge those two, you know, philosophies, energy, whatever you want to call it, that's probably kind of a perfect fit. Yeah, it was helpful in many ways from just like intro conversations to people to you know raising capital everything okay so will you you saw this gap between what the real world the real world numbers and the numbers people were reporting all of a sudden there's more of a push to measure things um, I mean there's just so many different ways that could go how did you hone in on you measure emissions tell us how you do it and how'd you choose to do it that way? Yeah, so you're hitting on a really important point, which I'm sure we'll come back to. There are so many good ways to measure methane emissions, all of which have strengths and weaknesses. So I gotta say that at the jump, and, and like I said, we'll unpack that more in a minute. By putting sensors around the facility and measuring around the clock, mm. you have the best temporal perspective, meaning that you can understand that this emission event occurred on this hour, on this date, and likely ended at this time. Okay. Everything else up until that point is largely intermittent, meaning that this satellite went over at this time and maybe there was cloud cover, maybe there wasn't. Was the emission event occurring a week before that, a month before that, a year before that? You may not know. Same thing with the traditional approach, which just for the listeners, the traditional approach is people go out with what's called an optical gas imaging camera and they look around at all the different pieces of equipment very closely to see if they find a leak. Mm -hmm. okay. And so that has been like the status quo for years. The problem with that is a lot can happen between here and there, meaning the last inspection. And there's a lot of emission sources which are intermittent, right? So you don't really have any sort of clarity on Unless what the there. true emission profile <coughs> looks like, right? So that's another piece. There's even leaks which are intermittent in nature where you have a valve that gets stuck, unstuck, stuck, unstuck. And so as a result, this is one of the big drivers behind the underreporting of emissions. In particular, a lot of people focus on the quote unquote super emitter problem. And that is where you have an absolutely massive release of methane that goes on for weeks, months, even up to a year because people don't know it's there because there's a long time until the next optical gas imaging inspection. On top of that, many of these facilities were exempt from any sort of inspection whatsoever. So you had a perpetuity. Age or what? Yeah, exactly, okay. age. So some of these older wells never had to have any inspection. Many of the leading edge companies out there still would try to inspect once a year, but there's many who want it. And as you know, 
there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these low flow wells. Mm -hmm. So wells that produce less than 15 BOE per day, barrel of oil equivalent. Uh And as a result, they're owned by quote unquote mom and pops, small businesses, people Mm -hmm. who've just always had these low flow wells for a long period of time. And like, they really don't have the ability. They don't have the the kit. They don't have the funding to go out and look for these leaks. So to get back to the essence of your question, we zeroed in on this because at many of these facilities that are higher flow facilities, I believe kind of the approach that we're taking is the end state where you can see emissions roughly around the clock and you have the ability, albeit with various levels of precision, to quantify total site level emissions. And that's kind of the holy grail. Because everything up until that point is really measuring your emissions with a spreadsheet, which for many folks doesn't always make that much sense. Yeah, you have an example of that it's it's compared to having a water bill estimated based on the number of faucets. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So instead of coming to your house and looking at the meter, they would just you say once, six. once a year, you know, I have two bathtubs, a refrigerator, and, you know, a few sinks here. And other than that, there's the hose out front, right? That would be your water bill. And so uh, that's an oversimplification, obviously. But the point is, is that you don't really have that good of an understanding of where these emissions are coming from. And that is all changing. And so you you put equipment permanently, permanently installed where around processing facilities, around well sites, where where does your stuff go and who are your clients and how do they how do they contract with you? Mainly upstream sites. So well sites where the hydrocarbons come out of the ground. We're also around gas processing facilities, midstream facilities, so compression facilities, gas storage facilities. We're out at landfills, which that's a, a fascinating developing how, how that is changing in terms of their regulatory approach as well over the coming years. But by and large, upstream. Okay. And, and your clients pay you by installed piece of equipment, by month, by mm-hmm. what's the... So, Mainly, or all of the above. Yeah, kind of all of the above, but mainly the business model started out and remains. They pay us dollars per month per device that's installed around their site that handles the lease of the device so we don't sell it, the data transmission, all the analytics in the models to quantify these emissions, API integrations to get the data from here to there, anything else that they may need. So okay. kind of an all-encompassing fee. And then there's some other stuff that we're doing where there's more and more add-on services that will be coming. Hmm. You're obviously growing that that services and and right at the beginning of this you said this is we're beginning the end all of the end state the end end state state of the collection yeah so in the end end state and this we can debate whether or not this is three years five years ten years or someone could reasonably debate ever right my view is that as scrutiny rises on these emissions and as the price per ton emitted goes up which it is at least under the current law slated to rise from nine hundred dollars a ton to fifteen hundred dollars a ton per uh, metric ton of methane emitted, you are going to see people focusing more and more and more on accuracy to know the true number. Right. And in that state, time is a huge component. So if you have something, if you have a 50 kilogram per hour leak, understanding that it started on this day at this hour is far more effective than saying, I know it occurred between this sometime in this six month window. And the regulatory approach says, if that's what you find, then you have to assume it was emitting since your last inspection. Well, now that yeah. 10, 20, 50, 100 kilogram per hour leak, just focusing on the leaks, has a huge ramification. Right. Okay. If it's a, if you can prove it's been going for two days instead of two months, right. mm-hmm. huge, difference. huge, huge difference. You mentioned the, the cost. I mean, for, for those that, that aren't aware, I mean, does methane have a cost in the U.S.? And just talk to us a little bit about that kind of tax or regulatory regime. Yeah, so it's called the WEC, the Waste Emission Fee, or charge, I should say. And so it's $900 a ton, metric ton, in 2024, 1200 in 2025, and 1500 in 2026. But the big caveat is coming later this summer when the EPA is revising all the rules, which is called subpart W, yep. and that's actually how companies go about calculating yep. the tonnage that they will owe that fee on. Now, to be clear, th- under the proposed structure, you would only pay a fee above the methane intensity of 0.2. So if you produced 100 units of natural gas in a year, right? You, you really get two own- for free. <laughs> that would be 2%. So yeah. you really get, if we move it to 1,000, then okay. you get two for free, right? And so that just gives you an idea of you have to have pretty low methane emissions, but many companies have been engaging in this practice for a while in terms of reducing their emissions. And so they, they will be below that, which means they owe no tax. Whatsoever. Why, why the end of this summer? 
is that time? I mean, what's coming up? The it's final rules for what's called subpart W, mm -hmm. which is the whole mechanism that companies report their emissions, is slated to change. Okay. And and who has to report? Is it every company? Is it every owner of, of an oil and gas well? Is it only oil and gas? Are there other industries that are affected? You have to have you have to emit more than twenty five thousand metric tons of CO two E in a given year. So very, very, very small operating companies are exempt. Okay. But by and large, if you know an oil and gas company, they have to report. Okay. And so they've got to report this and they've got to come up with they have to have a methodology to do that. And so what have they been doing? Have they been guessing? Have they been, I mean. I mean, largely adding up pieces of equipment and okay. activity factors and then adding on when they find leaks. And even when they found leaks in the past, the leaks themselves had an, a factor associated with them. If the leak is coming from this piece of equipment, we're gonna assume it's you know X grams per second, X kilograms per hour, X standard cubic feet per hour, whatever it may be. Okay, so put it in context. Uh, What's the, I don't even know, I mean, uh, what's an average methane bill going to be for a decent-sized oil and gas company? Is it going to be in the millions of dollars? Is it going to be in the tens of millions of dollars? Hundreds of millions of dollars. I wouldn't use the word average, though, because there's going to be a huge distribution. Mm -hmm. So many of the leading companies will owe absolutely nothing. But pay attention to something called other large release events. Again, this is proposed, not final, and it may be final as soon as August. These events effectively require some of these oil and gas companies to report leaks individually, and they can have a massive impact in terms of the amount of methane that a company reports, and in turn, the amount of methane that they owe the waste emission charge on. Give, give us an example of what that would be. Is that a, a valve gets knocked over and something vents mm -hmm. and it vents a lot it depends on where on the site it's venting from for instance if it's on the tank it technically falls under control measures so there's some technicalities in there but let's just say it's it's a pipe near the wellhead that cracks right and at 200 kilograms per hour and if you're only you know inspecting once every you know let's say twice a year the regulatory okay. max is 182 days that one event is going to cost you about a million dollars, just that one leak, uh -huh. right? Now imagine that if there's some of these uh, leaks that you can see that are in the metric tons per hour, so an order of magnitude higher. So now you're looking at instead of one million, ten million, uh -huh. right? And so you can understand how these things pile up quickly. Yep. So that's that's one way, and those are for the very large events. But something else can qualify for another large lease event, and that is if the total amount of methane emitted is greater than 250 metric tons of CO2e. That's important because you can have a low level leak, 5, 10 kilograms per hour. And if you're not ins inspecting frequently, then it also is classified as an other large lease event. Hmm. When you look at a distribution of leaks, so think about the probability of occurrence and then the flux rate ranging from 1 kilogram per hour all the way up to 10,000 kilograms per hour. Obviously, smaller leaks occur at much greater Rates. Frequencies. Yeah. And so this is something that no one really has the full data set on. No one, including us. For instance, we have selection bias, right? Meaning that, you know, companies that may have a larger problem are less likely to pay to put out a whole bunch of kit to, to measure their emissions yeah. accurately. And and how does, and Josh, I, I feel you wanting to get in here. Let yeah. me ask this one yeah. more question. When, will when, um, are folks going to have to start measuring and reporting? I mean, what's what stops folks from just not doing anything? I mean, they won't have to, right? So there's a that's an oversimplification, but it's really going to be how much that they want to show <coughs> what true emissions are, and if they don't, the rules are at least proposed. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. Being written in a way where, in absence of information, your emissions are going to look higher, right? So back to the point of you haven't inspected in six months, they're going to assume that the leak has been occurring for that entire six months, right? And so they will put forward more and more and more mechanisms to help drive to better and better measurement. Tighten that mm -hmm. actual reporting number. Yeah. And so you will see, and there's tons of wonderful technology. So like the flyovers, the yep. planes, there's a few companies that do that. They do effectively what optical gas imaging cameras do in, in a fraction of the time. The plane just flying over 
can they see as small of leaks as an optical gas imaging camera? No. But can you cover a hell of a lot more sites when you're flying a plane hundreds of miles an hour? Absolutely. Right? And so there's tons of innovation there. The satellites are getting better and better and better. There's all sorts of kit, like um, there's a company that makes an open path laser that can cover tons and tons of facilities with the same laser. Amazing stuff there. There's companies that use drones. There's just a lot of innovation mm -hmm. occurring in this space. And there's a variety of ways that a company can fit together depending on what its asset composition looks like. These measurement technologies to drive down their potential fee more and more and more. The question I was going to go with is, it kind of piggybacks on yours, Dan, is that how are you being received by companies? Like, are you welcomed? Yeah. You, okay. It's, it's a really good question. I mean, it really depends. As you know, there's uh, totally different cultures at companies out there, right? I think a lot of the leading companies understand that this is an incredibly complicated problem. Incredibly complicated. Of like, where are these emissions are coming from and what amounts, when? And then, by the way, even when you know that answer, what's the best way to, to address them, right? So some of them, I think, are... At, at one end of the spectrum, some folks may be saying, hey, this is uncertain. Maybe we're going to have a change in administration in November. Um, <coughs> I'm just going to hold on until everything's finalized. Mm -hmm. Totally understandable in some ways. Other companies are saying- Why? why? Because of cost? Initial cost? Yeah. And th th for them, sometimes it, it depends on like where they are in their career as well, right? Like some folks, generally speaking, are towards the end of their career. And then other folks are, are you know- let's say in their mid forties and they're going to be around the space for incredibly young yeah. really, that number. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Very young. Yeah, but you understand what I'm saying. And, and so it really depends. It's a, it's a breakdown. It varies across company role in the company individual. And again, like that's an overgeneralization mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, where people are in their career. There's tons of people who are later in their career who really are leaning into this because they want to make a difference for their children and grandchildren. All right, let me ask one other question, Dan, I promise I'll jump. Then why would people not want this? And is that the same question just phrased differently? I don't think it is. No, I think one of the things that has always been the case is is now you know what it is, so what? Okay. How do you go about reducing your emissions? And in some cases, you're talking tens, hundreds, maybe even a billion dollars for companies that have tons and tons and tons of assets all over the place. And as you guys know, especially in unconventional wells, like later on in the decline curve, like its production is down over 90% from where it started. And so many of these companies are not looking to invest more in some of those facilities that right. you know are further along on their journey. Yep. And and will is so is this much ado about nothing or um you know is methane uh, this is kind of a is methane a big deal question. There's a lot of focus on it but help put it in context as it relates to you know the intensity of methane versus CO2 or something. Are we are we focused on the right problem here? Yes, absolutely. And it's because, like, depending on whose numbers that you look like, you see that roughly 25% of human-induced climate change comes from methane. And again, to go back, it only lives in the atmosphere for 10, 11, 12 years. So reduce those emissions and you will see absolute levels of methane in the atmosphere fall. As where you won't see absolute levels of CO2 in the atmosphere fall if you start reducing the emissions. Okay, so... Getting getting methane out is more impactful. It has more of a near term impact. Okay, and are you a? You mentioned net zero earlier. Mm -hmm. Are you a net zero is needed to save the planet guy? Are you a net zero helps drive my business guy? What's the? How, how do you think about you know some of these goals that are set? Yeah, um, I'm less of a purist and more of like this is a problem that everyone needs to look into and be thinking about. It's kind of like uh, sulfur dioxide emissions when, you know, acid rain was mm -hmm. something that was, was really big. That's kind of a, a proxy. Obviously, that's more local rather than global. But yep. you understand the point there. <clears throat> and I think net zero will be a very unique path that we're headed on. I think that it feels this like this gradual journey now. But I'm a firm believer that you will see whether it's 5, 10, 15 years into the future, a kind of staircase jump in terms of the intensity, the focus, the amount that people are willing to spend on this issue. Really? Yeah. Because why? Why? I mean, what's going to, what's the catalyst? There? I mean, when you go, when you go back and look at like the propensity of, of humans, especially us Americans to spend on issues, it's when we get scared about something in a big way. So like, let's take COVID. $4.6 trillion was spent over a handful of years. Right, that was traumatic in a lot of ways. Lots of people lost their life. Not trying to diminish it, right? If you look at the war on terror, eight trillion dollars were spent. 
and the aftermath of 9-11 on the war on terror. Again, a lot of heroes lost their life trying to protect our mm -hmm. country. But my point is, is in those time periods, Americans were, were worried. They were scared. And they were willing to throw everything, including the kitchen sink, at the problem. And so you can easily imagine a year, again, 5, 10, 15 years in the future, where you have a very warm Gulf of Mexico that leads to five, six category five storms. Western states really facing a heavy fire season, floods throughout the Midwest. And I think that there may be one event that really precipitates, bam, like solidifies in people's mind that like this problem must be solved. This is also why you're seeing just demographic changes, right? Depending on which generation that you're looking at, they all have different views on climate change and, and what they think that we should do about it. And we can all argue whether those are reasonable, if they, you know, the cost is justifiable, anything like that. And so I just think that people model these nice, smooth transition periods for, for climate change. I could see us lagging behind and then all of a sudden it seems like we're never going to hit net zero and then come 2035, bam, it's just one of those years and it catches people by surprise and suddenly now everything is thrown into to turbo truck. Hmm. Yeah. You know, we kind of blew by his education pretty quickly. He's like, oh, I went to school here, did this, did that. This is one of our smarter guests we've ever had on. I mean, we this is, this is one of the guys, he, he's not a Harvard guy, which is my favorite is when they said, oh, I went to school in Boston. That's always great when they say that. But I mean, this is like, I'm listening to you talk thinking you're clearly versed in these subjects, obviously, but you're passionate about it. You're a great spokesman for this. I mean, you're doing this podcast. How, what is your, what does it look like for you telling this story locally, nationwide? You mentioned that Chris is your politician. I, I think you maybe have, have some future there as well. <laughs> no, definitely but not. <laughs> definitely not. What, I mean, what are, you're out there spreading this message is our people starting to listen, not just companies, but because that, that what you're describing there, I understand, like it takes a moment of impact for somebody to be like, we have to do something about this. Is, is there a way to avoid the moment of impact on this and just tell the story over and over? Absolutely there is, but like, you know, there's the Winston Churchill quote, like expect Americans to do everything wrong before they do the right thing, something to that effect. And my point for saying that is that everyone, all of us sitting here, like we all enjoy our lifestyle, like. I flew here on a plane to a certain degree. All of us are a hypocrite, right? And my point is, is that you reach a tipping point where the collective action overrides like the individual incentive. And all of these types of things are, are a mixture of that, right? If you would have tried to do all of the stuff that you have to go through at TSA back in 1999, people said, no way, yeah. right? Like, but now suddenly you find yourself in, you know, 2002 and it's like, do whatever you want, right? I do not want to yeah. be on that plane. Totally yeah. understandable. But Take my toothpaste. Think about how much of a, a change that was. People just used to roll up to the airport and hop straight on a plane. And now all of a sudden it is like screening on screening on screening, right? And it's understandable for like how traumatic that was. Is that the best use of money spent? Debatable, right? How many people they've proven can sneak things through TSA still, but it gives people peace of mind that something is being done, rightfully or wrongfully, and it does have some positive results. It, it, my point for saying this is we all like to think in this incremental world, but the world really never seems to play out that way. Think just about the paradigm in terms of working from home. How, if you would have tried that without COVID, mm -hmm. not a chance, right? And now you see people across generational cohorts who are very in favor of some sort of hybrid, in-office, fully remote, whatever it is. And I think it's going to take another five to 10 years to sort this out, right? There's a lot of research on it. And like people always say, well, you're more productive here. You're more productive there. Productive at what? Right? I'm generally an in-office person, right? But if I'm reviewing a legal document and someone's stopping by my office every five minutes, do you have a second, do you have a second, do you have a second? It's not really all that productive for me reviewing that legal doc. And so these, everything gets overgeneralized. And anyways, back to your, I guess, core point. I find that the hardest thing about the story that we're talking about here now is this clamoring for teams, team red, team blue. And really the picture is much more nuanced than that. Right? There's all of these trade-offs for every single thing that we're talking about. And I think too often all of that gets lost in this hyper-polarized world. So I think of myself as someone who is just more moderate, more pragmatic. And I think people want to be 100% renewable energy tomorrow, great aspirations, or like this whole story is fake, affordable energy. Right? Mm -hmm. And I just... 
the picture is much more murky than that. Yeah, never, never that black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do know is, as you just told us, right now there are reporting requirements around methane and there are tax impacts around methane. And so if you've got to report it and it costs money, then people are going to spend more time focusing on it. That obviously is to the benefit of your business. Um, tell us a little bit about, you talked about your technology and data. So who owns the data that you guys help collect? Do you own it? Does the customer own it? How, how do you use it to make you know what you do better? By and large, the customer owns it. It's just okay. too sensitive. It has financial ramifications. It has legal ramifications. It's theirs. They can do with it what they want. We have rights to utilize that data to make our models better for them, obviously, because the better the models get, the more easily they can find leaks and the more accurate emissions quantification that they get. Yeah. Explain models. What do you mean? Aren't you aren't you just measuring something? And so Oh, I wish it was that easy. Okay. Yeah. All right. So like let's just take Tell clean us more. sensors, right? Those sensors are really telling you this is how many parts per billion of this gas is present at this place at this time. And here are the ambient conditions wind from the southwest to the northeast at 3.2 meters per second, right? You then have to work backwards to understand, was that an abnormal emission? Is that something that the operator would want us to send them an alarm about? That's a delicate line because a lot of operators get pretty annoyed, understandably so, when they get leak alerts that, yes, they knew that this was going to be occurring at the facility at this time. You also have to work backwards and say, okay, well, where could this methane have come from? to arrive at this concentration at this point in time. This is all while you have an incredibly turbulent facility with pieces of equipment Mm -hmm. and anywhere from 50 to hundreds of different release sources around this facility. And you gotta pin down that location because if you don't get the location right, you're not gonna quantify the emissions correctly. And this is all occurring on an inferred basis. You can't really see this. You just have to know this based on everything else that you're seeing. So it's easy to talk about it, even in this, but it's all of these exceptions that you'll see that make this really hard. And so that's just point sensors themselves. And every single type of technology has their own challenges in some way like this. So that model is really your mathematical analysis of all those pieces of mm-hmm. kit interacting at the same time and what's what's realistically happening. Okay, so the data, you use that to get better at predicting the next time or the next event or the next, is it, is it getting better at predicting what might happen or is it getting better at measuring what has happened? Both. Okay. And so like we build a model that pro- projects the concentration on every single device for each time step. Why? Because what your mind is really doing, whether you're driving on the road or looking at a chart, is saying, wait a second, did I expect that thing to happen? And if you did, it's, it's nothing, it's business as usual. If you didn't, then that's normally what you would say, something looks funny here. And so that was one of the basis of, of trying to build better uh, alerting or leak detection algorithms. Mm-hmm. So that was one. So you're trying to figure out what's going on. And normally that's just operational emissions. So you see stuff that is, let's say, diurnal in nature, meaning that uh, <clears throat> from morning to night, there's differences. And largely that deals with like the integrating data from um, pretty sophisticated models from NOAA. Okay. And so like NOAA the, National Oceanographic. Yep. And atmospheric and, yeah, administration. Yeah. And so my point is those are operational missions. They occur around the clock and the changing ambient conditions, wind speed, wind direction, all sorts of stuff influences what methane makes its way to any given monitor, any given device at a given time period. Right. Including if you have people coming to haul away oil or water in the morning, every single morning, that will also be factored into the model where you can start predicting that that's going to happen, right? And these models occur across our, you know, you go to Netflix, right? They're telling you what shows you should watch just based on what you were watching last time. These are not crazy, crazy complicated, but the hard part is all of the changes and all of the ambient conditions that you see. So you actually need to have another piece of information, which are these high resolution models forecasting weather across about 70 different parameters. Wow. So it seems it's a, you say, oh, great, we're going to measure, we're going to measure emissions at a certain spot. And what you're saying is it isn't as easy as measuring emissions as a, at a certain spot. Definitely not. Unless you're going to have somebody standing out there the whole time. <laughs> but uh, you have to even be pointing 
Yeah, exactly. And even then, you can't really quantify emissions very well with an optical gas imaging camera. You're really just looking for, again, abnormality. Right. Right. Seeing something that you wouldn't have expected to see yeah. on that camera. So do you have uh, a gazillion computer scientists and data yeah. geeks on in your... Quite a few, yeah. And it's really this crossover between software, science, and really mathematics that make it so difficult. Is AI involved in this at all? Some, yeah. Way to go, Josh. Ding, got, buzzword. Yeah. <laughs> well, nice. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really am. That I believe very much that it's going to affect just about every aspect of business if it hasn't already it's soon mm -hmm. and as you're describing this that's all i can think of there's so much data involved that you know the generative ai stuff i'm sure is a big part of it generative ai yes but a lot of the ai hype largely occurs around llms large language model large right. language models and my point for saying that is that that is not applicable here you're yeah. dealing with tons of time series data across a variety of the of llm stuff yeah, so the right. LLM stuff is not as applicable here. Yeah. We do have a type of work that we do that the LLMs is applicable for, and that's really trying to quickly come to insights from tons of different disparate documents that companies will have. But that's kind of a, a separate topic. Yeah. So that'd be a, that's a, that would be a separate business. Line. Yeah, that's for our environmental assessment business. Okay. Okay. So do you think, you think carbon taxes are inevitable we've got them in europe are we going to have them in the u.s how do you think about kind of this, this taxation dynamic yeah to me it's a matter of when not if mm -hmm. and i truly think and this is what i say to a lot of producers lowering your methane emissions and having a lower carbon footprint is a huge huge benefit it makes you more competitive in the international arena and the u.s producers depending on like which area of the country you're looking at, are some of the lowest emissions producers in the world. And people are like, wait a second, that sounds, you know, like it, it's just speak to, to help out industry. No, it, it truly you have a lot of companies who their only product is natural gas. So they're focused on keeping as much as they can in the pipe, right? And then you have other areas, obviously, where oil is the primary focus and they have more of a challenge on emissions. And too often, again, to this team, this team, that world, people make these broad generalizations that don't really hold water. And so I say that I spent six weeks in the <coughs> European Union over the past year and a half trying to get them to focus on how competitive some of the U.S. producers are. And they would say terms like, we don't like fracked gas. Okay, but like, have you ever looked at the emissions coming out of Russia? Like you can see them from space, like straight up and down these pipes. They're, they're huge. What do, you, what do you feel when you discuss this with your European counterparts versus the American counterparts. How is the mindset there? I mean, having experienced both sides of this, meaning on one side of the Ukraine war and on the other side, it's changed dramatically. And so when these points were raised about like Algerian gas or Russian gas or things like that, excuse me, prior to the Ukrainian war, it was like splitting the mind in half. Whereas like, well, fracked gas, bad, dirty, Americans aren't good, but don't ask me questions about what's going on over here. And really quickly after they had to confront this issue. And then so they went scrambling to lock up supply. And then they kind of, at that point, they have a much greater concern than emissions. I, if it was me keeping my heater on in the winter, mm -hmm. trust me, where the gas comes from, not my primary concern. Do I have gas? Primary concern, right? But now that it looks like they're on the other side of, are they going to have enough gas to heat their homes and businesses during the winter? They're back focusing on the emissions profile of the gas, right? Because they have pretty ambitious climate goals and so they meaning europeans yes yep. absolutely and so this is where they're trying to square that but again it comes back to this point of like this world is much more nuanced the reality and having these kind of oversimplified discussions like u.s frack gas bad yeah when you're buying gas from an authoritarian regime that has incredible emissions right like it's something is like doesn't sync up with that and that's because it's a simplistic mindset instead of having to juggle two things in their head simultaneously. And then you get down to a lesser of two evils, cost-benefit trade-off, and that's oftentimes not like how people like solving problems, at least in this whole topic of energy transition. Ooh, right. Is, uh, as it relates to Project Canary, is Europe a better market for you guys than the U.S.? No. not. I mean, it, it's a fantastic market, but they have 
infrastructure that's largely focused on transport and distribution as where we span the entire gambit here in the United States. So there's just more. Here. Yeah, there's just, we have over a million wells strewn around the country. All the pipeline, you know, the gathering infrastructure, the interstate pipeline system, the processing, right? All of the consumption that takes place here in the United States, whether that's for electricity generation or that's for like pet chems and all the industry that we have here in the United States. And then obviously we have all the LNG to export this abroad. I mean, there's just so many more things going on here than there is there, but they are going to have to focus on this kind of in the same way. And believe it or not, the U.S. is further along in terms of the development and deployment of advanced technology to huh. look into this problem. I know that's counterintuitive. Wow. But it's, it's because it's when you have those systems, you know, when you're looking at a compression facility, it's hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on the size, obviously. And so you're going to invest in more control measures for emissions, but it's also somewhat easier to get your head around. Why do you say that's counterintuitive? Well, people say like, you know, it's, it's the same conversation comes up when you're talking about uh, California as well. Like some of their stuff in terms of looking for uh, methane emissions, Colorado is ahead of California. Most people wouldn't necessarily think of that. Pennsylvania, same thing, right? We get into all the weeds on that. But most people, again, have this simplistic view that uh, Europeans are more, quote unquote, green, more renewable energy, whatever it is, rightfully or wrongfully. And so therefore, they must be much more strict on some of these emissions. The only reason I even ask that question is I feel like it's, you know, here you're dealing with different states. There you're dealing with different countries. And I feel like we're just more regulated to one voice here, but maybe I'm Maybe I'm thinking of it wrong. No, you generally have it right. But okay. their countries are the functional equivalent of our states. So they'll develop some of these rules and then they go down to quote unquote member states. Right. And then they get to they create share the and... rules that meet those goals, okay. which is kind of the same when you're looking at some of these regulations like Quad OC. That's what's going to have to happen as well. Each state's going to develop their own plan. And it has to meet mm -hmm. the requirements of the federal government or exceed them in every instance. And those have to be approved at the federal level. It's somewhat similar. This is again, a vast oversimplification, but right. it's a similar thing. All right. Will, do, do your customers use your technology, your information in carbon markets? Are they, are they and, and, and I know you've got a view on carbon markets. So one, do they use it there? And two, talk to us a little bit about voluntary versus, you know, mandatory yeah. carbon markets. Some, um, I think, it's a spin on carbon markets in that some of them utilize it for lower carbon intensity natural gas, responsibly sourced gas, differentiated gas, certified uh -huh. gas. These people have all sorts of different terms. We were involved in that space in the early, early days. We can get into that more later, but the, the purpose of why we were involved is without any of these regulatory tailwinds, people would always ask us questions like, why would anyone want to measure this stuff? Right. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's counterintuitive. And so the whole goal was for them to distinguish themselves based on their environmental performance. Uh -huh. That's not necessarily carbon markets. It's carbon markets adjacent. Yeah. I say this because now on the back of the IRA bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, it, you see that that data matters and matters a lot. What do I mean by that? There are four tranches of tax credit for clean hydrogen, ranging from $3 per kilogram to $0.75 cents per kilogram. That's a huge swing. And that all depends on your carbon intensity of the, the hydrogen that you make. So if you're a blue or turquoise hydrogen, meaning you're breaking apart natural gas into carbon and hydrogen, the carbon intensity of the feedstock, in this case, natural gas, matters a lot, like a lot, a lot. And so now all of a sudden, if you're a hydrogen producer, your ability to access a tax credit depends on those upstream of you, right? This is playing out in other places. If you're buying an electric vehicle, you need to go on and check what tax credits are available for that because depending on where they got the raw materials, where it was manufactured, and how many of those electric vehicles have been sold already, you have a different ability to access a tax credit as a consumer. Same thing. This whole idea of integrated supply chain questions is coming to fruition now in front of us. So I say that's carbon adjacent because they're not necessarily minting a whole bunch of offsets on Vera or, you know, or any of these other registries, but it has a similar dynamic. Mm -hmm. And do you think do you think voluntary carbon markets um, have have a purpose or not? Yeah, to a certain degree. <coughs> I've always been. Um, it's harder for me to get my head around in an end state how a nation would really want their money going to a country across the world, you know, for a project that may or may not have, you know, the true carbon reduction 
that is claimed. I, right? I didn't cut down this forest, therefore. Yeah. Oh, avoidance is even harder, right? Because you you have to prove something that would have happened right. in a world that didn't exist. Um, and so I say that, and in, in, I've said this for years, and generally speaking, people would always show these nice, you know, again, smooth lines where it was like, you know, McKinsey or this, this large, very well-respected, uh, you know, consultancy, investment bank, whoever says that this is going to be a trillion dollar market by 2040 or whatever it may be. My view has always been that the governments, they love money, rightfully and wrongfully. And so when they have a new fee, a new tax, whatever you want to call it, they're going to want to get their hands on the money. And I have said this for years. And you're also playing a near term, long term game when you engage in just trying to make a net zero claim by buying offsets. So it, I am much more skeptical that that is going to be the way to go in the long run. And so therefore, if you have a limited amount of capital in today's environment, invest it in reducing your own emissions rather than trying to offset emissions that, by the way, you're just going to have to offset next year and the year after and the year after and the year after. And the proof is in the pudding as it relates to the methane fee, right? It's our first price on carbon, quote unquote, in the United States, just obviously for one greenhouse gas and just for one industry, oil and gas. But you can't go into the market and buy a whole bunch of offsets for a forest, you know, in the Congo and all of a sudden lower your methane intensity from 0.6 to 0.2. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. And so they want you to truly reduce your emissions because it has adjacent impacts like ground level ozone, for instance, which isn't good for kids playing outside or whatever it may be. And so they make you reduce your emissions or pay the fee. So I, I just find it harder to believe that Governments are going to watch, want to watch the money and go overseas for these projects that are avoidance-based, let's say, where you know, yeah. the claims are always questioned. Do you think the this is the this is the we're I don't know how long we are into the we're podcast, good. but we're now, um, so is the is the oil and gas industry taking this seriously enough? Are they you know, we see a lot about low carbon and low carbon solutions. A bunch of companies have various businesses there. Do you think, as you observe the customer base, um, are they doing it because they have to? They do it because they want to? They do it for the right reasons? What's the qualitative take on on low carbon and oil and gas? It's a mixed bag, right? So obviously, like regulation is the floor, right? So it's going to make everyone move in one direction. But then there's savvy operators out there, savvy individuals. I mean, think about many oil and gas folks are great business people. Texas is like one of the more entrepreneurial places in the country. When people see opportunity, especially in a changing environment, there's money to be made. And so a lot of the stuff that we're talking about of like low carbon fuels or, you know, adjacent verticals, a lot of the skills and engineering chops that this industry has is very well positioned to lead in those spaces. I mean, look at geothermal, mm -hmm. right? It's drilling, it's fracking, it's fluids. It's like building out a lot of infrastructure. Sure, the return profile may not be as good today, but there's a lot there, right? CO2 is the same thing. So for CCUS, a lot of people are leaning heavy into that. Hydrogen is another one. It's like very squirrely compound. It's one on the periodic table. You can do a lot with it from a pet pet chem space, right? Like it's, there's a lot there. So I think some are, they view it as an annoyance, right? Or at least even some people in the organization view it as annoyance. Other people view it as a massive opportunity and they see these tax credits out there and they want to take advantage of them now while they exist and, and pull down that money and scale up their operations, which by the way, in a world where you do move to a price on carbon, the same infrastructure that you built out for CCUS to you know access that tax credit is transferable to that world in a price on carbon. You know, uh, we had some time before the show, a little off-air conversation. I am, I'm, first of all, I'm thoroughly enjoying this interview. You, you do an excellent job explaining this. But there was, we talked a little bit about oil and gas and its role before the show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, one of the things you mentioned was potentially the infrastructure, the oilfield services world, the opportunity. If you don't mind kind of expanding upon that, because I think – a lot. This is the whole purpose of this podcast: is to explain to people, like, "Hey, don't be afraid of these things. Just learn about these things." Mm -hmm. And I think you had a really good take on that before the show. If you don't kind of mind me pulling that conversation out, absolutely, it's a massive opportunity, right? Like, even if we just isolate it to the methane emissions, just to keep it in the scope of this conversation, we can expand it outside. Well, someone's going to have to go out there and place all this equipment, measure these emissions, 
then it's the so what? What are you going to do with this data? Well, now you have your whole marginal abatement curve, right? So you're going to have to go through and swap out pneumatic devices and remove tanks and add vapor recovery units and yada, yada, yada. Like all of these real pieces of equipment turn wrenches to make stuff happen. Who's best positioned to do that? Project Canary? No. Oil field services companies who have footprint all around the world, who have far better oil and gas expertise than I do. I'll speak, say that much. And so there's so much there to do. And this is, you know, driving pneumatics on compressed air or nitrogen instead of gas. So maybe you're not removing them. You're, you're changing how they operate. Then you're thinking even beyond that, where we start getting into this whole adjacent world that I'm talking about, right? Where you're talking about geothermal and CCUS and hydrogen and all of these other things that are somewhat similar. They do rhyme. And as all of this changes, it makes people feel unsettled that my job doing what I was doing 10 years ago may be not may not be what I'm doing in 10 years, but that's a huge opportunity. And you just see how many different trends, I mean, transitions they've been through, like just moving from conventional to unconventional, whether people want to admit it was a kind of a, a big transition. And a lot of people were huge naysayers on unconventional. I remember that hearing for years mm. and years and years, it was never going to be economic. And all my point is, is, I think it's a massive opportunity. And too often it gets viewed as, as a huge threat, some, some agenda or anything else. Mm -hmm. And I get it changes hard. It's hard for you, me and everyone else, but it's also a huge opportunity. Yeah. Dan, you have a couple of really good questions here before we get to some of this other stuff. How do you want to phrase these last three? Cause I think I obviously I want to talk, love starting the business, those questions, but really I think the investors part is, yeah. is important. Well, let's do, let's do the starting the business. And then we can talk about funding the business. So, um, <clears throat> You identify this opportunity. Take us from you and Chris getting together and saying, "Wouldn't this be interesting?" To I mean, how how did you get it all done? So it's kind of brutal. To be honest. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's yeah, hear it. It's um, so it was early days. Chris was good at going out selling, and then very quickly, like it was my job to try to scramble to find put together some of the technology. That was tough. As soon as we really started getting up and spinning, and started putting things together that you know, worked decently well in early stages of startup. Everything is like minimum viable. It feels like duct tape and Bailey wire. Uh, then all of a sudden COVID hit and we find ourselves selling to customers who are facing at least for a very short time period, negative commodity prices. Right. No one knows when demand's going to come back online. Ah, everyone's freaking out. Understandably so. And so we had to weather that whole storm, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that time period, I was really pushing us to, to higher quality data, at least in the methane space, but that would take years to play out that bet. So it was, it felt like a story of nine lives. Like every other, you know, quarter, it felt like there was a new thing that was just about to kill us. And it just, it really did. It was, it was constantly like, just need to survive to next quarter type of a thing. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was a lot. And I think 2020 was tough. 2021 things started coming back really around in a big way. 22 things got like too heady, which is, it's a totally different dynamic where people are like, ah, like higher, higher, higher. And you're just trying to like put the brakes on that a mm -hmm. little bit. Cause that leads to a whole bunch of weird outcomes in many ways. So it, it was, I know this is kind of like a meandering answer, but it, mm -hmm. it was just a, it is much more high, low, high, low, high, low, high, low than most people are willing to normally speak about. I think uh, Pickering Energy Partners was started in April of 20. Is this, weren't you mm. right around that negative? <laughs> uh, September of 19, but yeah, uh, COVID, came, COVID came pretty quickly. Um, so will you, I, I like the high, low, high, low. Um, somewhere along the way, obviously the, what you were doing resonated because you have, I mean, you've got press releases out there on money that you raised from really smart people. So, um, what was, what was the hook and what, what do you think differentiated you so that, you know, all these high profile investors said, we want to take a chance on this. I think um, if you want to build something big after a big problem, right? That's one. A lot of these, uh, investors have assets or have invested in companies in and around the space. Mm -hmm. So some of them may own or invest in pipeline companies or upstream companies. And so they can view this problem as, as more relevant than just kind of another you know, investment in a larger portfolio. Yeah. It has relevancy to them. And so if for nothing more, investing in a company like ours may have been a hedge. 
So I think one, it was the size of the opportunity. Two, it was that they had an understanding of the problem. Three, is that we were really, we were early, right? We were trying to, you know, wave our hands and say this is a big deal far before it was popping up in, you know, COP27 and COP28 in, in these big, big ways. And so when people then came to say, well, damn, this methane stuff is going to be a big deal, we were at the top of many people's lists as well. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, there's the saying like, be early, be wrong, they're the same thing. There's some truth to that, but also even in people's mind, there's some benefit to it, assuming that you can get from here to there. Yeah. And when you think about the competitive dynamic today, you said there's lots of good technologies. Tons. Is the market just big enough that there's room for all of you in that market? I think the reality is as such that different assets have different ways of going about attacking this problem. And then people also have different preferences, which will tilt more towards different types of technology. Let me explain that. Let's say that you are really focused just on the super emitter question, right? Well, having satellites that are trying to give you as frequent reads on very, very large emissions quickly is fantastic. And then flying planes over your assets like fairly frequently, once a quarter, hey, maybe once every two months, is a way to also find, you know, not large events, but let's call them medium to very large events pretty quickly as well. And that is a good way to reduce a significant portion of your risk, right? And so that may be your preference, and those may be the measurement approaches that really align with that. And if you have a whole bunch of low flow assets, let's call them lots of stripper wells, it's not really uh, affordable. You said stripper. <laughs> That's what they're called, yeah. It, it may not be affordable to put out a whole bunch of, you know, technology around every single one of these low flow wells. And that's where, you know, flying a plane over all these assets is also beneficial. And so that would tilt you more in that direction. And so every single one of these operators has different set of assets, different set of preferences, right? And so they need to put together a variety of approaches. And that's why over the past year and a half, we've really focused on bringing together this data. One of the coolest things is when you overlap this data on the exact same site and you see one of these leaks, it's incredibly useful in terms of validating the gaps in one technology or another, but also trying to arrive at the same answer from uh -huh. one technology to another. And so now all of a sudden you're fitting in to where the other technology may have excelled. And so it's really provide us tons and tons and tons of advantages where you have like, let's say 200 kilograms per hour leak on one site where you have continuous monitoring. And in some cases, we had two varieties of continuous monitoring on those sites, spectroscopy and metal oxide. It's just a way that you can measure the methane concentrations. And then the plane went over and quantified the emissions. Now, all of a sudden, you can see what the readings were across all these different technologies and understand where the strengths were, where the gaps were, what one registered, what the other registered, and why. Because when you have a really large leak like that, there's a chemical buoyancy parameter that actually causes the methane to loft in the air even oh. higher. And so in some cases, it can go over those sensors that are mounted at the perimeter. And so it can really throw off some of your math. And, and seeing all of this data on top of one another is the only way to really drive at this. Wow. So some so you need belt and suspenders at times. 100%. And so you hear all this stuff about you know which technology is the winner, and there is no such thing. Wow. They all have benefits. Yeah. So... Project Canary is now how old? Five years. Five years old. Okay. And uh, can you tell, uh, you, you've got a lot of customers, but I mean, mm -hmm. quantify for us. You have a bunch of customers, a few customers. Yeah, quite a few. Uh, uh, well over 50. Okay. And um, when you think about, you, you, you talked about starting the business, highs, lows, et cetera. Um, thinking about just entrepreneurialism in general. You know, what, what advice are you going to give, you know, folks thinking about starting businesses, whether it's oil patch or not? Well, actually, I, I love this question, but you, on your notes, you have it specifically to in the decarbonization space. Okay. And I think that's an important distinction there because, like you said, it's the story of nine lives, right? That <laughs> entrepreneur person has that. But I am curious specifically about in the decarbonization space. I mean, it feels new. It feels there's a lot of moving parts. I'd like to know what it felt like in that. Yeah, I think so. The it's first a great question, Dan. That's why I really wanted to highlight that. <laughs> so I would say, just in any form of entrepreneurship, one of the things is folks from uh, younger classes at Stanford will reach out to me and they're like, "Hey, tell me like what worked, what didn't work." Right. Come to find out, they tried to start a business, and six months into it, they thought it, you know, 
it wasn't working. Well, too often in life, especially in this Instagram, social media driven world, people are only ever talking about the good. And so you'll hear a lot of entrepreneurs come out and talk about how it's been great, it's been life-changing, it's been so much fun, it's been fulfilling. And that is not necessarily the full story. And so you'll see a lot of people who will start a business and then all of a sudden they'll quit, right? Because they won't have the perseverance to go through these valleys. And trust me, you'll go through lots of valleys, even if things are going well. And so I would say one, it's perseverance. That being said, you don't want to chase something to the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, there is truly a time where you may have to throw in the towel. As it relates to the decarbonization path, I think it's one, think about where you think the end state will be, right? So think further out, but also don't be afraid to pivot. So a lot of these companies, they kind of start out around this idea and some of them are more capital intensive than others. And so it, it becomes harder and harder and harder in time when you're actually investing in equipment and going after the problem in a certain way to pivot and, and go after it from a different approach. But you got to have that flexibility. Everything is changing around us constantly. Like think about it. Just even the stuff related to the methane fee and how they're going to be going after emissions. That has huge ramifications in terms of our business model, other people's business model. And you have to be willing to second guess yourself and say, with this updated information, do I need to change my trajectory? Yeah. Right. And I think too often people stake out these really strong beliefs that this is the best way to produce hydrogen or this is the best way to measure emissions. And that prevents them from really leaning into the, the changing information, right? People will often say, well, you said this last year and you're saying this today. Well, yeah, I got new information between here and there. Yeah. Why would I not? change my approach yeah. and i think that intransigence really causes people a lot of trouble so perseverance think long term and then update your approach as you get new information willingness to pivot do you yeah. any any project canary pivots that oh are worth God, talking yeah. about so uh, let's i mean we can go through tons of them but like yeah, we originally very started, personal there didn't <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we originally started in volatile organic compounds why remember i was talking about btex earlier in this discussion but the whole purpose of me joining was really around methane. So like that was one that we really needed a push towards sooner, but that was not a regulatory compound, right? Meaning methane wasn't. And so there really wasn't a benefit. So in the early, early days, going back to 2019, we started in volatile organic compounds. Then we got into this environmental assessment space because that was trying to get people, give them a carrot to do more, right? There was no regulatory impetus for them to go out and, and measure a whole bunch of this stuff. And so they wanted a way to distinguish themselves from their peers. And so that was something that for a time period, Chris in particular loved that business. I really stayed focused on the technology, but the, it, it helped draw in customers, right? As well. Again, then we were really focused on our point sensor at mm -hmm. one point, but it was very apparent to me, even from the beginning, that it was a variety of technologies that would solve this problem. And the question was where we're going to be kind of a niche player and say we're going to focus on, on this one kind of area, point sensing, or are we going to start trying to integrate information from a variety of different sensors and sensing principles, meaning like flyovers, satellites, other point sensors. You were asking me about a company yeah. before this. I said, yes, we know them. We have a direct API built with them to, to uh, have their information shared directly with us. And so like that's yet another one as well. Mm -hmm. So we were really always focused on the measurement space by and large. But you're not going to put measurement out across 100% of your facilities, which means you are going to have to rely on these quote-unquote source-level inventories, the estimates driven from a spreadsheet. Well, that's something that we're doing a lot more of now. And by the way, when you combine that measurement data with that estimate data, you get to a much more precise outcome. A lot of people don't know this, but I, I say, imagine if you were saying that every SUV on the road had the same fuel economy. That's kind of where we are today, where we have these broad stroke emission factors. Doesn't matter its deployment configuration, meaning is it a pneumatic device on a separate air train or an emergency shut-in on a wellhead? It doesn't matter its age, its make, its model. Like, you're telling me that a brand new out-of-the-box pneumatic device functions the exact same as one that's been out there for 20 years? Right. Under the sun, in the winter, every, come on. Like, these are the type of simplistic approaches that people have been making because it's easy and they haven't really had a need to do so. But when you combine this measurement data with this estimate data, it's incredibly powerful because then you can start refining these estimates to be much more precise. And in theory, you will need less measurement in some cases in that future state. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the things that, that we've gone through and we're always updating our assumptions. Be interesting to see what five years from now <laughs> brings around this, yeah. this topic. Inevitability, I would think, right? I mean, it's definitely moving 
it feels like this is not going anywhere. Going away, you mean? Yeah, I'm sorry, going away. Yeah, that's right. You're not making it's not it. going anywhere. Sorry, <laughs> sir. Sorry. You're, there's nothing in happening in yeah. your in your business. Yeah. To be clear. No, yeah. I got yes. you. I got you. You never know. Shall we do lightning round? I think we're ready. Lightning Great. Are you ready a, for lightning excellent round? Excellent job there. We'll find out. The, You're uh, not ready for it. <laughs> the, the, the only requirement here is you don't get to explain your answer. So Ooh. one word. But then one, we, at the end, can we go back and add a few caveats as to why? Maybe? Um, well, well it's our, if probably right not. Wrong, but let's, let's find see. out. Yeah. Right, yeah. Lead the way, Josh. Um, skiing or snowboarding? Snowboarding. Work from office or work from home? Work from office. Wind or solar? Wind. Burgers or sushi? Burgers. Netflix or Prime? Netflix. Yeah, that's a no-brainer on that one. Hydrogen or carbon capture? Hydrogen. Top 40 or country? Top 40. <laughs> Will the world hit net zero by 2050? Yes. Hey now, okay. New York or L.A.? New York. Cash or crypto? Cash. Um, does the UK, Ukraine conflict last beyond June of 2024. Yes. This guy is sharp. He's yeah. good. Uh, F-150 or Ford Lightning? For now, F-150. Uh, do you expect another IRA-type bill in the next three years? No. And Josh, I'm going to let you ask the last question this time. I, I'm going to ask this, but I almost feel like I'm cheating here. <laughs> and I'm going to do this as Dan Pickering. Will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? Yes. Oh, you are Dan's favorite. So, yeah, you could come back. Absolutely. <laughs> like Absolutely. A, that was it. That's a trick. If you don't it. answer that, you're out. Yeah. Will, any, you said we could come back and provide anything you'd like to say about the lightning round questions that you felt you were shortchanged by one word answers? <laughs> no, not shortchanged. Wind solar, I was going to say both, but that's a cop out. Mm. Um, the Ukrainian uh, conflict, I think, is somewhat consequential in that. It's tied up in a whole bunch of other stuff with NATO, but it's also somewhat dependent on, on some of the political discussions that are ongoing right now. So you, you, Georgia, Villanova, Stanford, what what were your degrees? What were you studying at each one of these places? Oh man, so I went to, I graduated high school in 2007. So I was in the midst of the real estate uh, kind of debacle and grew up around real estate my whole life. So that was real estate finance. Um, okay. And then I went. That was a pivot. Yeah. Quick. Oh, eight. Yeah. Pivot. Yeah. So that, I was just interested in it. Right. Yeah. And then I thought I, at that point I was going to go for a PhD and that was more quantitative finance. So a lot of micro markers, market microstructure type stuff, uh, went into research in, in New York, which is fascinating. I had a lot of fun with it. I love research. And then, uh, at Stanford an MBA and then at Stanford, uh, MS environmental resources. Okay. Sharp guy. Very Absolutely. Entertaining too, with I mean, you do an excellent job telling the story. Yeah, so. thanks for having me. You guys have a great podcast. You bet. Will Foyles, thank you. Co-founder, Project Canary, www.projectcanary.com. Uh, we're excited to see what's next. Thank you so much. Thanks for thank coming. Thank you guys. On. Yeah.